you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. If you've ever tried one of these Bible in a Year plans, you often start out with a gusto, right? Uh, you're, you're in the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11, and, uh, and even the hard parts of that that have names and stuff, you make it through because you know uh, the stories you know are coming, right? So uh, you wade through there, and you get to Genesis 12 through 50, and you can... Uh, kind of find comfort in the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You uh, kind of tail end this story with the story of Joseph, who's his father's beloved son, uh, gets sent off, sold into slavery, uh, and kind of sets up what is to come in the rest of the Torah. You flip the page to Exodus, and you realize that uh, it's going to get a little harder. And so you, you read Exodus, and you're trying to use your willpower to stick with it, and you hear the stories of Moses and uh, the people being in Egypt and this deliverance from Pharaoh and, 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 and it's a story of a hard-headed people. And it gets a little more complicated because you start getting more names and more characters and they start adding in, uh, well, this person married this person and did this thing and did this thing. And if you make it that far, you turn to Leviticus and you give up and tell the Matthew chapters, right? Um, how many Bibles have notes all the way through Exodus and then stop at Leviticus 1 just for Matthew to be packed up, picked up later in the year, and you get all excited, and then Matthew starts with the begats. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. But that stuff in between is pretty significant to the story of Christ. Uh, after, uh, after Israel has wandered in the wilderness, this whole generation dies off, and, and they're finally delivered into the promised land. They are uh, finally experiencing the fullness of the covenant promises of God. They are a nation. They are a blessing to others. They are uh, in the land that God had promised, and, and their, um, their number are growing. They uh, eventually demand a king, and uh, they get uh, the king they demanded and the king that God wanted. They, they uh, kind of come to the high point of their story with King David. David finally takes the rest of the land they've been promised. David unifies the kingdom into one kingdom. David sets up uh, worship in Jerusalem. David, uh, this shepherd boy and warrior king, um, becomes the very pinnacle of Israel's story. And the good part is only about this long. Uh, David is a complicated character. David uh, has... Uh, uh, moral failures and high moments and everything in between. And then as is wont to happen, David dies. And his son comes on the scene, and uh, he's as problematic as anybody. And then his grandsons come on the scene, and the nation fractures. And before we know it, the, the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes, are carried off into exile in Assyria, which at the time is as big a nation and empire as you can picture southern kingdom breathes a little easier. They start making some treaties with, with Egypt and other folks, and they think, well, we can hold off Assyria, and they do. Uh, the, the southern kingdom has a few good kings, a few kings who, were, uh, who worshiped God as their father David did. Uh, but by and large, their kings are terrible too, and eventually uh, they go into exile in Babylon, which is way worse than Assyria. This, this makes Assyria look tiny, 
This is about the point where if you've made it this far, you just get really confused. The, the time when they're in exile is when about half of our prophets write. It's in uh, the time when part of the books of uh, Kings are written, the time, part of the time the books of Chronicles cover. And so you can cover the same story from four or five different books with slightly different interpretations and slightly different reflections on this moment. We uh, don't get exposed to this time of exile and waiting enough. Because this is the reality of Israel as they're waiting for the person who becomes Jesus, right? They are a people who were promised a land, who were promised that they would be a great nation. They were promised that they would bless the world. And instead, they are out here scattered to the hinterlands. They are separated, and they are told to settle in. And even when uh, Persia comes on the scene, who's even bigger than Babylon, Persia's like, well, it's hard to like, keep all these foreigners here. Let's send them home, and we'll just tax the mess out of them. And so they send back some people who realize this is, this is not good. And so the people who go back to Israel uh, are kind of miserable, and the people who stay in exile are kind of miserable. And, and they have to figure out how to worship and to love, and to be in the midst of this landscape. So for really about 500 years, they have to figure out, how are we Yahweh's people? For much of their history, they've been a nomadic, uh, kind of, uh, what are they, Tom? Nomadic sheep farmers and grazers, and, and they really aren't good at being settled. Um, and, and they're not a written people for most of their history either. They're oral. They tell the stories of Yahweh, the stories of their forefathers and the mothers who came before. But as they're scattered and as they're settled to wait, they figure out that we need to, we need to kind of formalize some things. And so this is the season where we give rise to the synagogue. We can't make it back to the temple. Frankly, the temple's desecrated. It's over there. God's not even there. So let's at least figure out some way to worship God. So we, we see synagogues pop up. We see the rise of the rabbis. Uh, if you think about your Old Testament, you never hear the word rabbi, do you? Mm -mm, never. But by the time we're in the New Testament, this is a common word where quite often Jesus uh, is ascribed to be called rabbi by his friends, even though he was a rabbi school dropout. Uh, but these things begin to emerge but maybe the greatest thing that emerges in this time of exile and waiting is, is written uh, accounts of Israel's story. They begin to put together what we would know as the Hebrew Bible, and it, it begins to coalesce, and they begin to put down their worship. It's like writing our hymn book, right? The Psalms emerge out of the stories of David and the stories of the past, and they are birthed in exile. They become the very center of synagogue worship. And y'all have read the Psalms, or if you've heard them, you know, some of them are really happy. And some of them are not. Um, quite a few of our Psalms are Psalms of lament. Why, God, does my life look like this? Why does our nation look like this? I've got no answers, but I trust you. And that's always the turn in the Psalms lament. I've got no answers, but I trust you. Don't ever prove me wrong. We have these Psalms of Thanksgiving. Psalm 96. Junus uh, Crossway made this beautiful quilting that's outside my office. Uh, it is mine. Don't you ever touch it. It is uh, this beautiful, beautiful psalm. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Declare his wonderful deeds. It's this prayer of Thanksgiving. And we have these other Psalms that are hard, hard to kind of 
uh, put into a category. Bill Ridge's Psalm 23 from the CEB, and it felt weird, didn't it? It, it didn't feel like the Psalm 23 that you're used to hearing. Uh, at funerals, we, we do it at almost every funeral, and uh, though I love the CEB, we always do it from the King James Version at funerals. Um, I was going to try to do it by memory, but I've now got four different versions stuck in my head. And uh, so I'm going to, Psalm 23 emerges in this moment. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a reason we read this at funerals, right? Uh, having been brought to life in the midst of exile, having been uh, uh, part of the worship of the church throughout its ages, we find great comfort in this picture of God as a shepherd, as one who uh, will tend and guard and care for us, Right? This, uh, this language is not uncomfortable. We don't read Psalm 2 ever in a funeral, do we? Do any of you, uh, have, if, has anybody put it down on your list for your funeral? If so, you're going to have to tell me. Because uh, it's, um, it's not one I'm going to pick without you telling me. Why do the nations rant? Why do the peoples rave uselessly? The earth's rulers take their stand. The leaders scheme together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Come, they say, we will tear off their ropes and throw off their chains. The one who rules in heaven laughs, and my Lord makes fun of them, but then God speaks to them angrily. Then he terrifies them with his fury. I hereby appoint my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the Lord's decision, he said to me. You are my son today. I have become your father. Just ask me, and I will make the nations your possession. The far corners of the earth will be your property. You will smash them with an iron rod. You will scatter them like a pottery jar. So kings... Wise up. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord reverently, trembling. Kiss his feet, or else he will become angry, and your way will be destroyed because his anger ignites in an instant. But all who take refuge in the Lord are truly happy. Who wants that at their funeral? Do you? Not me. But this, this maybe more accurately sums up the desires of the people as these psalms are coming to life. This desire for a king who would uh, trounce the other kings, a king who would go back to those promises that God made to Abraham, a king like David. A king who would be mighty in battle. A king who would ensure that things are right. And so Israel sits in this tension of calm trust of God and a desire for God to get in the, the, the military business of winning this battle. And they sit in this for like 500 years as nation after nation after nation storms on the scene. We think Persia's big. No, things get crazier. Uh, Alexander the Great and the, um, and the Greek Empire rises up, and it makes Persia look tiny. We have skirmishes between Egypt and its uh, kind of uh, friends and Greece and its friends. We have a brief uh, Syrio-Phoenician battle where uh, they come and they, they make Israel worship foreign gods in the temple. 
Uh, we have a brief period where it looks like Israel's gonna do this on their own. Maybe this is the Messiah, Judas Maccabeus. That name might sound familiar, comes in and destroys the Syrio-Phoenician army and they come in and they cleanse the temple. They tear down this altar that had been desecrated with the blood sacrificed to foreign, animal, foreign gods and they reestablish worship of Yahweh. They celebrate with a great festival of eight days of celebration where the, the tradition holds that the, the oil lantern, the menorah, never went out for eight days. Somehow it just kept burning. This is the festival that we would now call Hanukkah, this, this, uh, this remembrance of uh, God's, God's presence in the temple. But this is just a brief, uh, just a brief moment in Israel's page flip from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Before you know it, Rome comes on the scene, and Rome makes the rest of them look tiny. And Israel wants their king. They want this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ that had been promised to them. We know what happens. We know the story of Jesus' birth and his life and his ministry. And at every turn, he claims things like, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. His preferred self-declaration is the son of man, which calls back to Daniel on this, this vision of heavenly worship. But what they want him to say is, I am king Let's go to battle. And so for the gospel stories, we have this tension of these people who have followed Jesus and get it. Even if they're going to mess up, even if they have to keep asking questions, they have found him captivating and compelling, and they have become his very sheep, the ones who will follow him and listen to him. And then we have this other crowd who is like, no, didn't you read Psalm 2? We need someone to come in here and destroy Rome. And this tension just sits there. In the gospel text that Bill read today, it says, it came time for the festival of dedication. Uh, that should ring back to the story we just told. The festival of dedication, another name for Hanukkah. So uh, this, is a, this is usually celebrated in December, uh, as it still is today. A nice uh, season of light and life and remembrance of this time. It'd be another time like Passover where people would come to Jerusalem and, and the town would be filled with people uh, worshiping Yahweh. And Jesus is right on the fringes. It says he was in the portico that was named after Solomon. If you ever go to Wilmore, there's a little old restaurant called Solomon's Porch. Solomon's Portico, same thing, uh, features here as Jesus declares, um, I and God are the same thing. Um, I keep facing your criticisms, and I keep showing you. Have you not seen the miracles I've done? Have you not heard the lessons I've told? You just don't get it. My father knows everything, and I bear witness to what he knows, and oh, I and the father are one. You are not my sheep. You don't understand this. Y'all, I'm, I'm relatively certain I would have been one of those who are not his sheep. Um, if I am honest with what Israel expected, I am one of the ones going, where is our warrior king? 
Where's the one to come and do this battle and bring these promises? And then when this, uh, this rabble-rousing uh, rabbi school dropout rabbi who's drawing masses begins to say that he is equal with Yahweh, I'm fairly certain I would have been over here with the group that's on the struggle bus that is uh, really not getting this. My life bears witness to the love of God the Father. This, this imagery of Jesus in the midst of what should be a holy season uh, trying to proclaim the tender love of God where God uh, takes on flesh as Jesus and lives as a shepherd. In some ways, shepherds are more, uh, more of a powerful picture to me than kings the more I think about them. Because kings at, at often have enough barrier around them to keep them safe, but shepherds go out with a sling and a staff and face down the lion. They know every day that they are putting their lives on the line for their sheep. And Jesus says, I'm going to put my life on the line for y'all. This shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep, this shepherd who would give his spirit to the church, this shepherd who uh, would pour out on Peter, who, by the way, is preaching in Solomon's portico uh, on Pentecost Day, the spirit of Christ to fill the people of the church to go and do these same miraculous acts, to bear witness to the love of God, to go and do signs and wonders and declare the love of God and, and to flip systems of oppression and, uh, and injustice and uh, to declare that we, just as Christ did, bear witness to the goodness of God. That we, in the midst of things that look hard and look bad, go and declare the love of Christ. We are invited to be his sheep, and we know his rescue, and we know the safety that comes in Christ, and then we are invited to actually go and bear witness to what it means to be his sheep. To go and declare the lamb who was slain is seated on the throne. The, the Revelation text, uh, right before the one Bill read, talks about uh, Jesus as the Lion of Judah, who is the lamb that was slain. And as we wait for that time when we'll worship uh, before his throne, we go and announce the good news of his kingdom. We go and declare that we have found refuge and protection from the from uh, all that would seek to ensnare us, that our shepherd is good, and that he is king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Holy and loving God, you, uh, you never ceased uh, to care for humanity. At every turn where we messed up and when our love failed, uh, you remain faithful to us. When people didn't get it, you kept explaining. When people doubted, you showed up in the flesh. When people hurt, you healed. When people were outcast, you welcomed them in. When you gave yourself up for us, you entrusted us with your spirit. 
to go when it's hard, even when it's uncertain, to, to bear witness to your love and to your light. Lord, would you meet us here at this table? You who uh, are the good shepherd, you who are the lamb that was slain, may we feast, may we delight in you, and may we go forth in love. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.